One of the best parts of being a pastor of a local church and not teaching academically or being on the road teaching the Bible is you get to talk to the same people week after week about what you're teaching and how it's affecting them. Sometimes it makes you angry, sometimes it makes you happy, sometimes you have questions, but my very favorite part of the local church interaction around the teaching of the Bible is when people voluntarily stop me and say, I know that what you said is true, not just because I read it in the Bible, but because I lived it. And they tell me their story of how God has shown up in their lives and made them live out what sometimes seem difficult, scary things that He's told us to do in Scripture. For three weeks ending today, I've been teaching through the last half of Luke chapter 12 where Jesus was interrupted in the beginning by a man who wanted his brother to share an inheritance with him. And that led Jesus to begin teaching his disciples about money and possessions. He told them a story in response to the interruption about a rich man who behaved very foolishly. Because he was prospered and he enlarged all of his belongings, and he decided he could pile it all together, and he thought, and this was his foolishness, he thought he had time to enjoy it. And God interrupted that man and said, you fool, today, tonight your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, for who will they be? And then Jesus put the dot on the story. He said, everyone will be this way. Everyone who behaves this way is foolish unless they are generous toward God. First thing Jesus said is, you live your life generously toward God. Then he tried to reassure them by pointing out the lilies of the field and the ravens of the air that God took care of and clothed. And he told them, since he was telling them to be generous, not to worry, because their Father in heaven, who clothed flowers and who provided for birds of the air, would certainly take care of them because he knew their Father knew what he needed. And they were still afraid. And I'm often afraid, if I take Jesus seriously, if I read this as God's living Word spoken by His Son, I'm going to hear things that are literally not of this earth, that turn my world upside down, that speak directly against the values and the culture of the world around me and the culture of my own heart who wants to find strength and sufficiency and satisfaction in myself. So, since that is true, let me give you an open-ended invitation. I'd like to do something that preachers seldom do. Would you commit, if we can read what Jesus said, and His words are clear in Luke chapter 12, if you can identify what Jesus is telling you to do, how about this? How about you commit on the front side to do exactly what He said? Will you do that? Okay. It's an interesting phenomenon. It was just like that in the first service. <laughs> Did you hear that? Let me reframe the question because maybe I wasn't clear. I said, we're going to listen to Jesus. Will you commit on the front side to doing what Jesus said? And there was a resounding? Yes. No, there wasn't. There was silence. <laughs> there was silence. And finally, a child, who frankly should probably be in the first grade class or the nursery, 
exhibited the faith of a child and said, did you hear it? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Small child or someone pretending to be a child, I'm not sure. Now listen, that doesn't seem like a, that, that actually doesn't seem like a very daunting question for people who are following Jesus. If you say on the front side, if Jesus makes something clear to you, will you promise to do what he said? I've asked that of audiences before. No one ever in any country ever says, yes, we will do it. Now, why is that? It's for one reason, and I want you to hear somebody's story that I heard for the first time two weeks ago, three weeks ago now. I want you to understand, and then we're going to hear from Jesus, why on a simple question that you know the right answer to, that intellectually you want to do what Jesus said, let Jackie Phillips explain to you why you and I hesitate. Hi, I'm Jackie Phillips, and I've been a member of Crosspoint since 1991, and I wanted to share my tithing story. When I first started coming to Crosspoint, uh, I was a single mom with two little kids, and money was very, very tight. And I was probably attending for over a year until the Lord put on my heart that I needed to start tithing, and I was scared to death. As an example, the last week of every month, I would borrow a roll of toilet paper from my office and I would take it back after I got paid at the end of the month because we didn't have any. Um, one can of Campbell's Chicken and Star Soup would get two cans of water added to it, and my kids would have it for dinner two nights in a row. Uh, it was just, it was so hard, and I'm like, Lord, how can you be telling me that I need to give you money when my kids go to bed hungry now? And I argued and I fought and, and God and I argued and he just kept saying, do it, do it. And I'm, I'm like, how can I, how can I? So finally, I took a deep breath and I decided that I would start giving $55 a month. Well now, $55 a month in 1991 was a week's worth of groceries at my house. And I can't tell you how scary it was. And at that time, our um, church still had the blue movie seats. And we had ushers that had to wear these really nice blue blazers and ties. And I'm sitting literally clutching the hands of the seat the first time I put that offering in. And, it, and I'm hanging on because if I didn't, I was going to jump out of my seat and tackle that usher and get my envelope back because that was a whole week's worth of groceries, and that last week of the month, we didn't have groceries anyway. Well, long story short, I didn't get a raise. I didn't shop any differently. I didn't start getting child support. There was no more money coming in. I didn't run out of toilet paper. I didn't run out of milk. I didn't run out of cereal. We didn't have to water down one can of Campbell's soup. It lasted. It, the only thing, the only thing that changed was I started giving that $55 a month. So don't be scared. Um, I encourage my friends that don't tithe to set, pick a set amount. You know, don't, if 10% just scares you beyond belief, pick a set amount 
enough to where it hurts, where you feel it, and start giving it on a monthly basis. And watch, just, just watch what God will do. Uh, a few years ago, I was given a scholarship to attend Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University here at Cross Point, and I did, and today I am debt-free. The only debt that I have is my mortgage. After renting for almost 30 years, three years ago, yesterday, September 2nd, I bought a condo. And God is, God is so good. You just, you just have to take that first step of faith and give. So the disciples are scared. That's a normal experience if you're paying attention to Jesus. Jesus says scary things. Jesus has been largely domesticated in the United States. The hard things he said are barely paid any attention to. And when we stumble across them in our Bibles, I've seen people who with big degrees, more degrees than Fahrenheit, try to explain away what Jesus is saying and how it was different in his day, but we know better now. When I asked a group of disciples, now maybe you're not a disciple of Jesus, maybe you're investigating Jesus, you're wondering what to do with his claims and with his life. I'll tell you, you should trust him with your life. You should bet your eternal soul on him. But when I ask you on the front side, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, if you're not certain he's your Savior, to do without qualification what he says next, it's impossible for you because you've never trusted him with your soul first. But for the rest of us who know from experience, we saw it in Scripture, we believed it, we called out to him, he saved us, we know we're saved, we know we're on our way to heaven, it's real, he's a real personal Savior to us. It should be natural and automatic to say, whatever Jesus says, that's what I'm going to do. That's the heart of discipleship. And the reason you hesitated and the reason I hesitate, and I'll look at these passages sometimes, as long as I've been a Christian, and even as a pastor, I will sometimes look at Jesus in the Gospels and say, surely you didn't mean this. <laughs> and I try to reason with him. He doesn't negotiate, by the way. <laughs> The reason that happens is you're afraid. That's the only reason one Christian could ask a group of Christians, will you promise to do what Jesus said? And everybody essentially said silently, let us hear what he wants first, and then we'll decide. You're in good company. Jesus' first disciples who knew him better than you and I did, they were afraid too. They've been hearing this teaching now three consecutive ideas, three explosive, life-changing, soul-stirring, but also calming truths from Jesus, that if you live for money here and now, you're a fool because someday it will all be taken from you, that you can be generous toward God because your heavenly Father already knows what you need and He has promised to provide it. They've heard that, and now Jesus looks at them, and again, He sees that they're afraid. Look with me in Luke chapter 12, verse 32. I know they're afraid because of what Jesus says to them. They've been listening to this teaching, but it hasn't been doing them much good because they're afraid. 
I know that because Luke 12, 32, what are the first two words? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Someone has said that is the most repeated commandment in all the Bible. Of all the things that God commands, this is what he says most often. Don't be afraid. What will keep you from being a wholehearted follower of Jesus is your fear. What fear asks is this question. When you're afraid to do what Jesus said, when you're afraid to do what God said, what you're asking yourself is this question, is God good? That's at the heart of it. If I do what Jesus said, is he good enough to take care of me? Is he good enough to make sure that I'm okay? Listen to Jesus' answer, Luke 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, we've been at church for a while. Are you ready to hear what he said next? <laughs> Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves money bags that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Listen to him again. You're reading it in English on a printed page. But this is faithfully, historically, this is accurately what Jesus, the Son of God, said to his disciples while he was on earth. It's translated for us, but this is exactly what he said. This is at the heart of his discipleship. This is at the heart of our struggle with him when we're afraid and we fear that God is not good. Listen to Jesus talk to you if you're part of his flock. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus knows his disciples are afraid. He can read them like a book. The Gospel of John says that Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew what was in the heart of people. And Jesus looks at this little band of followers, and he knows one thing about them. He knows that they're afraid. And he says, don't be afraid. And he calls them by one of the most endearing little titles you'll ever find on the lips of Jesus. Did you see what he called them? Little flock. That's shepherd language. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, you're afraid. You're like sheep. You're helpless and defenseless. You can't provide for yourselves, and you know it. You have all these people after you. The religious authorities were already after Jesus and his little band of disciples. It was already getting tough. Family divisions had already arisen. Jobs had already been lost. Economic pressure was already on them. They were already on the road with Jesus, and it had already cost them a great deal. So, on the basis of interruption, Jesus has been teaching his disciples about money and the rock-solid assurance they can have that God will take care of them. And he looks at them, and he knows they're afraid. And what he says is, don't be afraid, little flock. And for them, not for us so much, but for them, that would have conjured up the most beautiful images in their Bible in the Hebrew Scriptures. They would have been reminded of David writing, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack anything. 
They would later learn that this good shepherd is the kind of good shepherd that goes forward to meet the wolf. When danger comes for the flock, he doesn't flinch and he doesn't hide behind the sheep. He steps forward and he meets the wolf. And Jesus will say things like this in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. He will say, I lay my life down for the sheep. He will say, no one takes my life from me. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. He's telling them, listen, I'm your shepherd. You're afraid. Here's why you need not be. I am your shepherd. And more than that, just as good. Not only am I your shepherd that will die for you, providing for you and keeping you safe, I also have this good news for you. God is your Father. Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Jesus is the master communicator. One of the hallmarks of someone who communicates well is they can say so much in so little time. Years ago, my wife started listening in a time of illness to a, another pastor who is a phenomenal Bible teacher. He's with the Lord and I took it personally because I'm insecure because one day she, I walked in and she said, you know, I've been listening to this guy and he is so good. He says so little in so few words. And I thought to myself, unlike me, who takes so long to say so little, I get it. I say, I understand the point of comparison. She didn't say it. I felt it. It's my insecurity. The people who communicate well don't need much time to do it. Jesus says, don't be afraid, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. In other words, in one sentence, he's packed in two of the most reassuring images in the whole Bible. You have Jesus as your good shepherd who will go face death for you and defeat it. And because of that, God himself is your Father. It is your Father's good pleasure to do what? To do what? That's the best news you'll hear all week. God is your father, and he is a king. That's so far removed from our experience in workaday democratic America. Let me, let me tell you what, that's such good news. For a lot of you, you didn't have good dads. Your dads were mean, and they pushed too hard. Maybe they weren't around to push too hard because they weren't there at all. Maybe you men, you have a father wound in your heart. And like a lot of very accomplished men I know, including men who are truly elite, the very best at what they do, they've dedicated their whole lives in incredible success to see if they can finally please that man. Because he said they would never be good enough. And they've succeeded at the very highest levels trying to earn one man's acceptance. Here's the good news of the gospel. Because of God's own decision, not because of your decision, not because of your merit, your father decided to love you enough to send his son who willingly came to die on the cross to be your good shepherd so that he could call you his flock, his family, to make sure that you safely got home and you have a father in heaven who is better than any earthly father. If you had a great dad, as I have a great dad, you are blessed. But let me tell you, my heavenly father is infinitely better than my own earthly father and is infinitely better than me at my very best as an earthly father. He is immeasurably, inexplicably good. 
He is faithful and loyal and justice and righteous and good and generous. And this little verse says all of that. He is the king, the creator of all things, and look how good he is. It is his good pleasure to give the disciples of Jesus what? The kingdom. You're related to the king. You're related to the creator of the universe. And he doesn't grudgingly, because he has to, he doesn't resentfully give you something. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Wow. You ever give your kids anything resentfully? Oh, listen, I have written tuition checks with resentment in my heart so many times. Rotten kids, get an A. What do you mean you got a B? Paying too much money for bees. What are you talking about, bees? I'm hungry. Again? You just ate. That is a father who is not showing good pleasure in providing for his children. Listen to me, this is big. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, his rule, his reign, so that he's in charge, he's calling the shots, and you get to enjoy all that he made and everything that belongs to him. That's what princes and princesses do. They receive the kingdom from their father, the king. He's going to gladly give you the kingdom. So what Jesus is saying is there's absolutely nothing to fear. Here's why you shouldn't be afraid. You are my flock, and your father loves you, and he gladly, he with great pleasure gives you the kingdom. So here's what you're going to do, verse 33. Since that is true, sell your possessions and what? Give. Ouch. Whoa. That's what you were afraid of. <laughs> when I said on the front side of this sermon, will you promise to do what Jesus said? He said, oh. Hear it first. He's stacking as much reassurance. Jesus is taking great pains to tell those who trust him that they will be okay. That they are loved, that they will be protected, that they will be provided for, that they will be rescued, that they will be safe, that they will be blessed. And because that is true, Jesus says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves money bags that do not grow old. Provide yourself a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Here's why. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How good is God? He's good enough to promise to provide for you, and He's even more generous than that. He says that if you will do what he said and trust him and give generously, he'll keep it for you. That you'll give it and it'll be gone on earth, but it will be kept for you. It will amass, it will build up somewhere else. Look carefully at Jesus' words. He says, give on earth, right? Sell your possessions, give to the needy, and provide for yourselves. Store up for yourselves what? Let's look at his language. We're studying the Bible now. Don't look at me. Look at your Bible. And you're making this up. No, I'm not. Look at your Bible. Luke 12, verse 33, provide yourselves with what? Money bags that what? 
that do not grow old, a treasure where? In the heavens. Well, where on earth is there a place where money bags do not grow old? Where moths do not threaten possessions, where thieves do not break in and steal? Only one place in heaven. Here's the greatest lie we believe about giving. We believe once I give it, it's gone. That's what we believe about giving, but it's not true. What Jesus is saying is, give it away on earth and you'll enjoy it later in heaven. When you're taking from what you have and you give it generously to God, you give it to the needy. In other words, you give it to people who cannot repay you because pride is not opposed to doing good. Pride is opposed to doing good for people who cannot benefit you. Jesus says, don't put that out of your mind. Give generously to God. That's in the vertical. Part of that will be giving generously to the poor who cannot possibly repay you and benefit you on earth. And when that is happening, Jesus is saying, you are providing for yourself in that act of giving, you are providing for yourself money bags that do not grow old. You are storing up for yourself a treasure in heaven that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. What Jesus is saying is this, give it away on earth and enjoy it in heaven. In Randy Alcorn's phrase, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. That's what Jesus is saying. Very few Christians believe him. You see, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus said that there were two masters. One is God and one is money. And he called money a master, a boss. What that means is if you're a disciple of Jesus, you live continually in the tension of two different bosses, two different masters telling you to trust each one of them. And Jesus said you can't serve them both. You have to decide. You'll either serve God or money. And it's not an American thing. Sometimes it becomes very obvious that every human being on earth is born apart from God loving money. Our hearts are drawn to it, and that's what that particular boss wants. He wants you to trust him, wealth, security, safety, large investments, health insurance. He wants you to trust all of the things that earth can provide. And Jesus says if you do, and in that trust you fail to be generous toward God, you're behaving foolishly. And if you're afraid to let go of those earthly possessions, if you're afraid to sell some things off to give to the poor, you're putting everything you have at certain risk here on earth. What you need to do is move it from earth to heaven. And it's a hard thing. I don't know anybody who doesn't share Jackie Phillips' initial experience. The only people who don't are children. Parents, if you will teach your children to be generous from the first time they start earning money, and they learn early on that they can trust God and He will provide, you'll do them a world of good. But if you get much past childhood and you lose that childhood simple faith that, yes, of course, God will take care of me, the master of money will wrap himself around your heart and make it 
ever harder for you to take Jesus seriously. What Jesus is saying here to these disciples, to these frightened disciples who have already given and left so much, he says, trust God with everything. If you have to sell something to give, that's how much it matters. I've wondered at length why he said sell your possessions because I know that Jesus is not opposed to personal property and I see in the early church that they owned things. He's not saying get rid of everything you own. I think what he's saying is this, giving is so important that if you don't have any liquidity, you would do well to sell something so that you have something to give. Man, that's radical. That's Jesus-sized. Now, why would you ever do that? Because when you do, the treasures that you have here on earth aren't gone forever. They're kept for you in heaven. There they will be safe, and there someday you will enjoy them. You will see the difference you've made. You will hear from your Father that you have done well and that you have been faithful. Hard thing to do. Where do you start? You start exactly where you are. If you're like Jackie Phillips and scared to death and thinking about tackling an usher and wrestling the envelope away from her, based on her description of the church auditorium and the time frame, I think probably I was in college, I would have given a semester's worth of tuition to see that if she had done it. <laughs> I'm so glad that Jackie told me that story. I'm so glad that she was willing to be filmed in telling it because what you're seeing there is the growth of a disciple. She doesn't worry about it anymore. I'm sure like me, she still has questions and she still struggles with fears sometimes, but she has known for so long that her father is good, that he himself is a generous giver and that Jesus is her shepherd. I'm pretty sure she doesn't worry about it anymore. And you see, that's the point. Don't miss the last verse here of Luke chapter 12, verse 34. Why does God command this to be so? Is it because God needs our money? That's what George Carlin said. George Carlin, and I hope he repented and came to the truth before he died, but George Carlin made a brilliant comedic career, and one of his bits was that God is a magic figure in heaven who needs your money. People would laugh. I'll tell you what that is. It's blasphemy. God doesn't need your money. You can read through the Bible and hear God say things like this, the silver and the gold are mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, they belong to me. The psalmist says we are like sheep. That's what we are. We're part of your flock. You made us. We don't belong to ourselves. God doesn't need your money. We here on earth, and I do too, admire people who are wildly successful in business. Richest man generally in the United States, he's giving a great deal of it away, but still maintains a pretty high net worth, is Bill Gates. Do you think God in heaven is looking down on Bill Gates and saying, wow, it's a lot of cash? <laughs> no. He made everything. He made Bill Gates. His creativity, his drive, his diligence, his ingenuity, it's all a gift from God, and it will be called someday by, from Bill as it will be for me and every single one of you. Now, preachers, 
their motives may be suspect, and that has to be said today. When you have a guy who claims to want to spread the good news, who says at the same time that he needs a Gulf Stream to do so, you have good reason to question his motives. You may have good reason to question mine. I'm telling you that you don't question Jesus' motives. He's telling you in this last verse why this is so important to God and why it would be necessary if the disciples were already living at such a simple level that they didn't have any cash on hand, it might be a great idea to sell something so they would have something to give. Here's why, verse 34, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You understand what Jesus is saying? Put it in my words. His are better. I'll put it in mine, though. Your heart follows your money. That's always the way it's been. Your heart follows your money. Wherever you put your money, your heart is sure to follow. It's like this. When I was just a young guy, a good friend in our church, knowing that I wasn't that sharp, took me aside and said, you need to start investing. You, need, you won't be young forever. You need to save some money to retire. So I did. Very nominal amount. But I started taking an interest in where the money was being invested. He was doing it. He knows what he's doing. I don't. But for the first time in my life, all that fine print in the back of the newspaper became interesting to me. Not all of it, just the two little things I owned. Oh, plus two. All right. I made four bucks. <laughs> two shares, two dollar gain. Life's good. At that point, I started getting interested. I drive an old car, so the other day somebody bumped into it and I left. <laughs> At a certain point, it's going to be an improvement, you know? Uh, <laughs> if nothing else, it'll elicit pity. When my wife and I were first married, we wanted to put our little treasure, our little boy, in the best car we could afford, so we bought a high-dollar car seat and put it inside a brand-new car, and someone in my neighborhood over on Volga Drive keyed it one night for absolutely no good reason. Now, see, there it is. I said somebody keyed my brand-new car, and you went, <gasps> you see how true that is? The heart follows money. It's not even your car. I don't even own it anymore. <laughs> Why do you care? Because the heart follows money. Fire on the other side of the world is interesting. It may be a cause for prayer. Fire in my neighborhood is a compelling problem that demands my attention. Why? Because my treasure is there. It might be my house that goes up. Jesus is saying, it's not that God needs your money, little flock. It's not that you're going to earn the Father's love. It is His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Here's why I want you to be focused, generous givers. Here is why I want you to give as much as you possibly can. Trust Him as much as you can and give accordingly because when you do so, you'll turn earthly treasure into heavenly reward. Earthly treasure that will be taken from you someday will be put in heaven for you to enjoy later, and no one can take that from you. And every time you give, your heart will follow that money straight into heaven. People who have learned to be generous with God without even knowing that they are changing their heart in that way become far more heavenly-minded. Mission letters become of keen interest to them. 
the church's health, the church's ministry, its effectiveness in reaching people with the gospel, of reaching the poor, of coming alongside broken families, of helping kids who have no hope, of giving all of those people and the wealthy and the comfortable the good news that only Jesus can save them. If people have invested their hard-earned cash into that enterprise, their heart is drawn to it. And they don't have to be persuaded or cajoled into anything. Their heart is already there. That's why Jesus is asking his disciples to give. God doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. And if you'll trust God enough to give, what's going to happen step by step, year by year, as you learn to trust him more? It's going to fight your fear on earth by leading your heart on toward heaven. So, where do you start? You start right where you are. I hadn't seen that video. I'd heard Jackie's story three weeks ago now. But it caught my ear because here you have a mom taking toilet paper, borrowing a roll of toilet paper essentially once a month and replacing it. That sounds like the widow's offering to me that Jesus said had given more than all the wealthy men pouring money into the treasury. To meet someone like that, to see that heart move toward heaven, to see how God has blessed, that's a gift to me and a gift to our church. I have no idea how God will take care of you. I know that he will. So I know that everyone, including me, needs to start where we are. If you don't earn much money, if you don't have a job right now, start with what you have. Do what you can. Push right up to the edge of trust and with trembling hands, do what your Father said. Do what your Lord said. And step back and watch Him provide. If you're one of those who gives automatically and it's just a very routine thing for you, you might want to go back and look at your income relative to how much you give. Let me explain it to you like this. My first job was a $5 an hour job. I gave from that a very paltry amount. As God blessed me and my Heavenly Father started showing up, what Jesus taught me was I needed to move the proportion up north so that I felt it, as Jackie said. If I would have kept my giving in relative to that meager income, I wouldn't be trusting my Heavenly Father at all. It would be the master of money telling me, I got you, Bruce, I got you, I got you. I can tell you my stories all day, but they're not the point. I can tell you this on the basis of what Jesus said, which, by the way, I've proven in the experience of my own life, my family for two generations, and countless Christians who are anonymous to you but are people like Jackie Phillips, you cannot possibly outgive your heavenly Father. How he will provide for you, I have no idea. Am I promising you that you will be wealthy? Not at all. Most of the Christians in the world today are poor, but every Christian who takes Jesus seriously and at his word discovers that their father is able to provide. And over time, given years and sacrifice and trembling and giving when you don't feel like you should and it feels reckless as it did for Jackie, you continue to do that and your heart moves toward heaven and this earth has a far less appeal to you. In heaven, you're eternal destiny becomes ever more attractive because your heart is headed there already. What's my invitation to you? To listen carefully to Jesus and to take the next step. If you're not a giver, to start. 
If you're a very comfortable giver, to take another step forward and make a little bit uncomfortable and wait to see what your Father does because when you trust Him, He will provide and He'll take your heart toward heaven. Let's pray together. I've said a lot. I want you to give your attention now to the Lord in prayer. And if you've heard from Him, if you can remember His words, not mine, but if you can remember what He said here, I want you to take it to Him if you're following Him and say, Lord, what next? What should I do? He will guide you. When the kids ask the Father what they should do to obey Him and please Him, believe me, He speaks. So I'll be quiet and you just talk to Him about it. If you've heard from Him, tell Him that you'll obey Him. And do it soon before you get back into the habit of doing what you please rather than what He said to do. Father, speak to your disciples who are present here. We're also different. Some families have money set aside for years, and there's no earthly reason to believe anything could ever threaten them. Others are like Jackie was years ago, watering down soup and taking toilet paper on loan from the office just to provide very, very simple things. You love every one of your children. You will provide for them, and you want everyone, the wealthy and the poor, you want them to trust you. You want the wealthy and the poor disciples you have in this room and around the world to be generous towards you. So help us not to think of what others do or what we've done in the past. Help us to hear your voice and take the next step in trusting you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.